0: to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com.
1: Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kreminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, here we are again. We are number 80. Episode 80, kind of hard to believe, but we did miss one week in the last 81 weeks. It was around Christmas last year, right? That's right, yeah. But pretty good. So last week we had Warren Hatch with us, super forecaster out of New York. And that was an interesting discussion, but it got us thinking about a discussion we started a few weeks back where we'd started this sort of, I don't know, mini series on I'm dead, now what? And we promised to have an estate lawyer join this conversation to offer more insightful Insight than we have on being dead. So we're happy today to have Jonathan Ng from Underwood Gilholm join us to discuss estate planning. And Jonathan, welcome to the Free Lunch Podcast. Thanks, guys.
2: Appreciate the invitation.
3: Listen, Jonathan, it's great to have you. Before we dive into estate planning, why don't you just tell us about yourself, what you do, your practice areas, the things that your firm does.
2: So I'm a wills and estates lawyer in Calgary our firm is Underwood Gill Home Estate Lawyers. We specialize and practice exclusively in the areas of estate planning, estate administration, and estate litigation. So we deal with the now what? <laughs> we deal with people that are planning for death, families who are managing the estate of a deceased person. And sometimes when matters get hot, we have lawyers that can manage the litigation as well. It's a full-service boutique offering estate services, I've been with the firm for almost 10 years now and I'm happily focused on the planning and administration side, intentionally excluding the litigation and conflict side. That's where I started out in the trenches and I'm happy to not see it so much, but I'm grateful for having colleagues that deal with a lot of the disputes because that very much informs my planning practice and try to keep my clients out of hot water.
3: I was just going to say, I guess if the planning and the administration is done well, then hopefully that reduces or eliminates the need for litigation down the road. So that leads into why is estate planning so important? What do people need to know?
2: There's a lot of facets to it, and I'm going to try to hit as many as possible. But I always like to say that the biggest part of estate planning is taking control, taking control of your affairs, making a decision as to how you want your assets handled after you pass away, making decisions about who's going to be in charge of your kids if you have minor children, Who's going to be in charge of of making medical decisions for you if you're unable to make those decisions on your own? I don't want to bore your audience by reading them the law about what happens if you don't have a will. But what I want everyone to know is that there are laws that kind of stand as your default will. If you pass away without a will, contrary to popular belief, everything doesn't go to the government. But there is a little bit of truth in that, in that there are laws in each province that say who gets your stuff if you pass away who has the right to act as the executor, so to speak. So who gets to administer the estate? And it's fairly clear. Unfortunately, many Canadians pass away without a will. And these laws come in as our default parachute to tell the living how our assets are to be handled and who's in charge of it. Same idea if if a person becomes incapable, so a person develops a severe dementia and cannot manage their financial affairs, there are laws available to family members and friends to take control of those assets and make sure their assets are taken care of. So there is this default that I want people to be aware of, but estate planning is about saying, no, thank you to the default. I'm going to choose who's going to be in charge. I want friends to benefit, for example, as opposed to the default family members that I've chosen. I want to make tax plans that minimize taxes on death. I want to create legacy with my assets and with my name moving forward. So estate planning, I've given some additional reasons, namely legacy. But I always like to put that to clients. It's about taking control and having your say.
3: That makes so much sense. It ties in with a lot of our clients when we do financial and retirement planning. Same thing. If you dive into retirement without having given it any thought and without having done a plan, you might find yourself not in the position you wanted to be. In. And so estate planning sounds like it's the same thing. This is just off the top, but do you have any idea among people who die... What percentage of people die without a will? It's surprising to us to hear that people die without a will, but obviously many, many do.
2: I don't know that one off the top of my head, Greg, but the general statistic as to the number of Canadians who do not have a will generally seems to hover at around one half. Wow. It's a glass ceiling that in my practice, I haven't seen that number change. And you'll see stats can release new numbers every so often. And it seems to hover around that place. So there we go. In terms of how many of those Canadians later die and die intestate without a will, it's not a statistic I have, but it is worth noting that a lot of people are inadvertently going with the default plan.
1: Let me ask you, Jonathan, when we're talking to clients, we often ask them, well, we always ask them, do you have a will? And they'll say yes or no. And probably about half say yes, and the other half might say no but it always comes up like when somebody's going on a trip, they don't think about it, but now they're going on a trip and it just, it's top of mind and maybe they panic a little bit. Some people say that you can just handwrite out a will. Is that called a holographic will? And just sort of leave it on your kitchen table just in case something happens. Does that stand up in court if somebody like literally just handwrites out some version of a will in their own words?
2: The answer is yes, Colin. I'm going to Make sure I got my lawyerly hat on and say yes with conditions. the fine print. I'm going to speak specifically to the province of Alberta, where we're all physically sitting right now, where state law changes from province to province. But I'll narrow your question down to Alberta and say, absolutely. And you've got the term perfect. It's a holograph will. This is a will written from start to finish, the whole thing entirely in your handwriting. Signed, of course, no witnesses needed. No witnesses needed. And that is a valid will. And I've seen it many times where clients are out the door, so to speak, going on holiday, and they'll leave this document, as you put it, on a kitchen table or with a family member with the advice, hey, if something happens, here's my will. So it's true. It is a valid will. But what I like to share with your listeners and tell clients, I'll expand the holograph will to the conversation of will kits, because it is possible to kind of beef it up a little more and maybe elevate beyond the holograph will and maybe get a will kit from an online resource, or or Staples used to sell these things. Post Office used to sell these things. (laughs) Basically, this is the whole idea of DIY, doing it yourself. And like with many do-it-yourself approaches to professional services, there comes risks. A will is a simple document, really. Make no mistake, everybody. I like to say a will just really does two things. It says, who gets your stuff and who does the work? At the end of the day, that's really what's happening here. And it's completely possible for a person who's not trained in the law or finance or accounting to nail it. They could say, I choose my husband to be my executor. I give my entire estate to my husband, signed, dated. That's a valid will. And I can say that that's probably going to cover things, but nowhere in there are we thinking about personal effects that might go to certain people, not to the husband. Backup plan. What if she and her own husband pass away on the flight at the same time? There's no plan B set out in that will. So, on one hand, it is easy to create a will, it is easy to write a holographic will or fill out a will kit, but those resources don't speak to you. They don't tell you about tax efficiency. They don't pick the brain of the person about what about plan B, the whole host of other things that I'm sure we'll chat about today.
3: And before we get into the will specifically, you also mentioned other aspects of before you pass away, there could be other issues, suffering uh, medical incapacity of some kind and things like that. So talk a little bit about the importance of, I guess, there's three main documents that you would deal with clients when they come into your office. Let's talk about those a little bit.
2: For most Canadians, the vast majority of Canadians, their estate planning documents are broken down into three. This is the, I like to call the trinity of estate planning documents for most Canadians. And they are the will and then the Enduring Power of Attorney, and then the Personal Directive. Now, note that those latter two documents have different names depending on which province you're in. So here in Alberta, the Enduring Power of Attorney, to be specific, is a document that governs finances in the event of incapacity, and the Personal Directive governs healthcare and personal decisions in the event of incapacity. In Ontario, they're both called a Power of Attorney, just to keep things real simple for Ontarians and then different names certainly throughout the country. But the theme, taking a broader step back, the idea here is when we're embarking on an estate plan, we're thinking of two circumstances. Number one, the circumstance of death. And number two, the circumstance of incapacity, a situation where you're alive, but unable to make decisions on your own. And delving further into that issue or that scenario, so we're imagining a situation, again, it could be a severe dementia, it could be A car accident. It could be a young person who gets into a car accident and suffers from a head injury. and They're not the same person after. Unable to make decisions regarding money, unable to make decisions regarding the healthcare. The law splits those two types of decisions very intentionally. The law basically says there's a set of decisions a person needs to make that has to do with their finances, their land, their investments, insurance, taxes, anything that can be related to this person's money or can be turned into money is in a bucket of decisions. And then there's another bucket of decisions that basically says anything else. And the anything else, practically speaking, is healthcare decisions and personal decisions. So in Alberta, we have two documents to speak to these respective two piles. When I'm working with a client who is preparing their estate plan, I put them in the scenario. If you're unable to make decisions regarding your finances, who are you going to put in the driver's seat there? And again, if you're unable to make decisions regarding healthcare, who are you going to put in the driver's seat there to work with your healthcare team, speak with your doctor? Make personal decisions in your best personal and ethical interest.
1: What if somebody doesn't have somebody that they, I don't know, trust or they're close with that they want to put in that position? What does one do?
2: We certainly try our best, first of all, to see if there's someone out there. But you're right, Colin. It's common where people will say, well, I'm lucky to have all these family and friends around me, but they're not suited for this job. Maybe my children are too young to do this. Maybe my family members are too far away or I'm a very private person. I can't have anyone doing this for me if I'm still alive. Well, there are thankfully alternatives. So when it comes to the enduring power of attorney, again, that's the document where we're choosing someone to make financial decisions for us. There are third-party options, often referred to as a corporate power of attorney. What we're dealing with often is entities known as trust companies. Many trust companies are subsidiaries of banks, and they can be asked to do this job. Their service comes at a fee, as we can expect.
1: Wait, wait, wait. You mean banks charge fees for services? Is that, I, I didn't catch that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. Shocking. Shocking. <laughs> I thought it was a charitable service myself, but <laughs> turns out there's a whole fee schedule for this thing. <laughs> for a fee, they will step in your shoes if you're incapable of managing your finances. They'll pay the bills for your home. Heck, if you're not going to move back into your house due to your incapacity, they'll sell your home for you. Pay for your care. And unless there's some extenuating circumstances, they'll do this role until you pass away. So trust companies are a common choice for families that don't have someone that can act in that financial role. On the healthcare side, unfortunately, the bank will not make healthcare decisions for you, not a job they're willing to take, (laughs) Hmm. probably not one that (laughs) you'd want. I think we all love our bankers and financial advisors in our lives, but they're probably not the right people to be bedside. (laughs)
3: Yeah, good point. I had that
2: wrong.
1: No, Uh, no, no, you you got that. Yeah,
3: you nailed it. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Unfortunately, the choices are slimmer here. So, again, if, if we've really run through all the folks in our lives that could potentially make these decisions and concluded that they cannot here in Alberta, it is possible to ask the public guardian of Alberta to do this job. Now, it's not a common thing to do, but it is one of the mandates of the public guardian to take on these jobs. There are conditions. In particular, the individual with my health, we have to ask for permission in advance. And we have to kind of let the public guardian know, hey, my client, for example, is not comfortable asking her children. Maybe she does not have children. Maybe she's, again, a very private person and there's no person that she entrusts. And the public guardian will assess the situation. They'll even contact the person, talk to them, learn about their wishes. They're strangers to each other after all. And then after some mundane paperwork, here we go. We have someone that has named the public guardian of Alberta to be what's called their agent under their personal directive. I should let the listeners know who the public guardian is. This is an agency of the government who among their mandates are to assist Albertans who are under some type of incapacity, help them with legal decisions. If they're a child and they don't have a voice in court, the public guardian will sometimes step in. And again, this is one of their limited roles, but this is something that they can be asked to do. And I've helped probably about half a dozen clients do this over the last five years.
3: When we start talking about executors of wills, of course, we're going to be talking about the need for a backup executor in case the person you name isn't able to take on that responsibility. Is the same true with powers of attorney and personal directives? Do people typically have a backup power of attorney or a backup attorney for personal directive purposes?
2: You bet. I like to have at least a plan A and a plan B for these documents. So, for example, speaking personally, If I passed away or became incapable of managing my affairs, I've appointed my wife to take on these roles. But we got to have plan B. Me and my wife are in the car together all the time. Hey, she might refuse to do the job. She doesn't have to. I think listeners should know wills are not contracts. We're not forcing people to do these jobs. And if for one reason or another, my wife's not in a position to act as my executor or act as my attorney under my power of attorney, I've got a backup plan. Here's my plan B, and I'll lay it out. I've had clients setting up a basketball team, like they'll have. Plan A right through plan F, just in case (laughs) number one, number two, number three, number four, number five don't want to take the job. So I think that's a little much, (laughs) realistically speaking, but it gives that client confidence that there's a backup plan and a backup plan and a backup
3: plan. Just a little bit on the enduring power of attorney. Like we've run into situations in many cases where a power of attorney is in effect as soon as it's signed. And then there's other types of powers of attorney which come into effect when somebody has. An incapacity that's been identified or verified by a physician. Is that the case in Alberta? How does that work? And what are the different types of powers of attorney?
2: I'll use a term, it's a colloquialism. It's not exactly an official legal term, so to speak. But if I were to create two categories of powers of attorney, I would say there's an immediate power of attorney. That's a power of attorney that comes into immediate effect. The second I sign it, my wife, for example, carrying on an example, my wife as the named attorney can bring that document to a bank. Where I have my accounts, and she can start withdrawing money. She can start managing my accounts, speak with my advisor in theory that day. So she has immediate authority versus what I would call maybe a springing, another casual term, a springing power of attorney that would take effect on a future date. So again, in that scenario, I would sign that power of attorney today, and there would be a condition right on page one that says this power of attorney only takes effect upon my loss of capacity. And two doctors have to sign off on that. The latter, the springing power of attorney, that's personally what I currently have in effect. So I'm 40 years old, relatively healthy, I think. And most clients choose that approach. They say, This is my trusted person, but I'm not going to give them authority until I'm in a bad place. That's the common narrative. But flipping over to the immediate power of attorney, the narrative, there's no one rule to this, but the common narrative is maybe it's a senior who, well, paint the scenario further. Maybe it's an advanced senior, maybe. 80 plus, perhaps a widower, and he's not as spry as he used to be and relies quite a lot on his adult daughter to help him with making decisions, going to the bank. This is a guy that probably does not do a lot of online banking. He likes to bring his bills to the bank. This is how he was brought up and this is his custom. But here he is now at 80 plus and not as healthy as he used to be and really rests on his daughter to manage things for him. He might say in his power of attorney document, I'm going to sign an immediate power of attorney. And I'm going to give that authority to my daughter. So she can go to the bank. She can do things without my presence. Theoretically, she can do things with my minimal involvement because I trust her. And that's really a cornerstone of this power of attorney document. It's like creating a double of yourself. That's what I like to tell clients that are making this big decision. When you're creating an immediate power of attorney, you're creating a second version of yourself. Don't get me wrong. I always say to this gentleman, for example, you're still you. You can bank on a Monday if you want to. But with this immediate power of attorney, your daughter can go in on a Wednesday and complete transactions. And then you can go back in on a Thursday. So there's two of you now. You're not giving up authority. You're creating a second.
1: What's that Michael Keaton movie where he creates himself into multiple people? Do you remember that one? Is it called <laughs> Multiplicity or something like that? Yeah. Anyways, that's what it reminds me of. I think I got it. Multiplicity. <laughs> yeah. As you were talking, I was just thinking about some experiences we've had with clients over the years. And unfortunately- there have been some issues when it comes to estate planning. The issues of course come out when the estate planning kicks in. In other words, somebody's died and we've watched a couple of families sort of fall apart over who was named executor, who wasn't, who got what or whatever. I won't bore you with the details, but I'm sure you have a lot of experience dealing with this situation. So the importance of picking the right people for the right job and outlaying it in advance How important is that to like communicate it to the next generation or I don't know, is it?
2: It's huge. It's huge guys. Wills can be very complicated, long, expensive, and don't get me wrong, very effective at what they're trying to do. Again, very complicated tax plans, very complicated trusts, holding money for 50 years, really passing money down to generations, creating a legacy. I can go on all day. This is some fun stuff that I want to talk about further, but When we're mapping these out, I stress with a very high level of importance with the clients that this plan is only as strong as its executor. I really mean it. You can have a 50-page will with very, very detailed plans. It's really some real legal masterpiece here, guys. But if you're choosing an executor who is maybe not familiar, maybe they didn't even know that they were being asked to do this job. They found out at the funeral that they're going to be tasked to do this and run a private foundation and execute on a complicated tax succession business plan, then you may as well have written it on a sheet of paper or on a napkin and left it in the kitchen and just said, I give it to my son, let him figure it out. Because that executor is going to have a struggle. So choosing a good executor is, I would wager to say, one of, if not the most important parts of creating your will, because they're going to make it happen. They're going to make everything from pages two to 50 happen. So let's focus on page one, first and foremost.
3: Now that we're talking about it, what are some of those considerations as to how to best select an executor?
2: There's a lot of traits that I think make a great executor. I'll kind of answer the question in the reverse. A lot of people will come in with an expectation that a good executor should come from a background in finance, a background in accounting, a background in law, maybe some related profession. And yeah, sure. I think a person's day job does say a lot about what they might be capable of doing But absolutely, that's pretty obvious. But I feel, and when I look at my, reflecting on my estate administration practice, my clients who are executors, good executors in particular, come from all sorts of backgrounds that have nothing to do with the professions I mentioned. And here's a fun fact. Most executors are rookies. This is a fact. Most executors are rookies. They're going to do it once and they're never going to want to do it again. Okay? (laughs) We'll talk about why later. So they're normally doing it for the first time. And it never ceases to amaze me how well an executor can excel at the job, regardless of what their day job is. So I'll be more specific. Why do I care about this? Why am I saying this so early? Because I think the trait I'm referring to, or the traits I'm referring to are, again, not legal knowledge and finance and accounting, but number one, diplomacy. It's common for an executor to be accountable to many beneficiaries. So example, if, if a parent passes away and an adult child is administering mom or dad's estate, they're tasked to divide the estate equally among the children. They've got a number of beneficiaries, their own siblings, often, who they have to report to and account to. So diplomacy is a huge, huge trait that goes a long way. Others being organized. Again, a trait that certainly transcends professions. And I've seen a few lawyers, for example, who are not too organized, maybe in their personal lives. They organize their desks, as I look at the papers in front of me, being organized, keeping good books is a good part about being an executor. Fun fact, an executor has a duty to account. That's one of the legal responsibilities of an executor. And being able to keep good books is a huge trait. I will touch again, just very briefly, again, awareness about finances and awareness of the law surrounding the situation is key. But I would call that trait, not necessarily knowing the law or knowing finances, but being humble enough to say, I don't know much about those areas. I will seek advice and carefully listen to it. I think that's a trait I don't know what you call that, but that's certainly a trait that makes for a good executive. A person that knows what they don't know, they're willing to seek advice.
1: That's good. I think we're going to have to bring Jonathan back for another episode. I think we are.
3: Personally, I'm less than halfway through my questions for you, Jonathan. So hopefully we can pick this up on a future episode because this is just the beginning as we get into structuring a will and who needs a will. And do you need wills in other places if you have property elsewhere in other provinces or in the States? Do you need wills in many different jurisdictions? So let's plan to pick that up the next time we can
1: get you on this podcast.
2: Sounds good, guys. Looking forward to it.
1: Well, because we want to finish with a bit of a fun speed round, just for fun. What do you got for Jonathan, Greg? First thing, what books are you reading these days?
2: (laughs) Okay. Other than estate planning manuals and (laughs) textbooks, because admittedly that's crowding my desk right now. I'm reading Over My Wife's Shoulder, The Happiest Toddler on the Block. I don't know the name of the author. This is his second book. His first book was The Happiest Baby on the Block. And we've got a four-year-old and one-year-old, so we can use all the help we can get.
3: I was going to assume that there was some relevance to that (laughs) because I'm pretty sure Colin and I have not been browsing that book lately.
1: I wish I would have read that book. I wish it was available. (laughs) My kids are now too old and don't talk to me anymore. So I'm glad you have happy toddlers <laughs> in your house. Good for you.
3: <laughs> we're trying. Following on that path, what about videos or TV shows you're streaming or what's binging? What are you binging these days?
2: We gave up and got a Crave slash HBO subscription last week. So right we're in trouble. Yes. <laughs> we're in trouble. We intentionally did it for the latest Curb Your Enthusiasm season. Big oh, fans. Yes. <laughs> You guys, Curb Your Enthusiasm? Oh, yeah. You yeah. yeah,
1: David? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> We're enjoying the new season. I
3: find Curb Your Enthusiasm a little too embarrassing to watch at times. It's too awkward. I have to turn away. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's painful. It's painful. But as I'm browsing the HBO titles and just reading the news, I'm seeing tons of good stuff about Succession. I haven't seen oh. it yet. I figure oh. I should probably watch it for professional development. For
1: exactly. Purpose. I'm all caught up on Succession, like it's season three. I think it's going into episode six or something like that. And you will really like it with your background. That family could use some help. Yeah, right on. <laughs> <laughs> Probably other areas of help too, Greg. I'm I, I think so. Like, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, well, that's good. So, what do you do for fun when you're not reading, watching? curb your enthusiasm or hanging out with your toddlers? What do you do for fun?
2: Wow. It feels like ancient history before any of that stuff happened. I mean, you guys know what that's all about. I'm trying to really turn back the clock. What did I used to do (laughs) when my sleeves weren't wet from a child's bath? And of course, just falling asleep. Anyhow, once upon a time, my wife and I went to see a lot of theater. Love theater here in Calgary in particular. Happy to hopefully get a theater Calgary subscription back. So Love it. So in the meantime, we're just listening to the recordings, but love theater, love movies. I do get up off the couch here. I promise you.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've got a one-year-old and a four-year-old, so I know that's a fact.
2: Let me see. Okay. We made it out to the batting cages that summer. I think that's something that was a lot of fun. It's something I used to do more when I was younger, but it feels good when you connect with the ball and it's also a great stress reliever to really smash that thing.
0: Yes. Right
1: on. That's a <laughs> we we all need something to smash at times, right? That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well listen, maybe we'll end it there for today. And we are gonna follow up with another episode with you because we do have a number of questions to get through. So thanks for joining us today, Jonathan, and thanks for agreeing to be on another episode.
3: We'll see you next time. Look forward to it. Thanks very much. All right, till next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM group at CIBC Wood Gundy to subscribe to this podcast, to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets work.com. We'll see you next time on the free lunch podcast. 21